Father, thank you for this wonderful time. Holy Spirit, use me. uh, Speak to your people this morning through me. And may your people not hear me or see me, but hear and see you. I pray for our pastor as he as he goes to church, as he is in church right now. I pray for whoever's ministering over there. I pray that you feed our pastor's soul as rest as as well as the rest of their congregation, Lord, and feed our souls this morning. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can turn to you can turn to John chapter 19. Verses 31 through 42, we're not going to stand, but I want this, I want us to get the feel of, of what's happening, okay? I want us to get the feel of, 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 of what's taking place at this time. John did an amazing job last Sunday on preaching on these verses. So I want this, this, these verses to be sort of like the backdrop and, and the intro into what we're going to talk about this morning. Okay, I want you guys to place yourself in the story, if you can. Verse 31 of John chapter 19, since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews placed as Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and then the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who has saw it has bore witness. His testimony is true and he knows he is telling the truth that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. No, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take, the, take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds of weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid so because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was closed at hand, close at hand, they laid Jesus there. On May 21st, 2011, President Obama addressed America, and this is what he said. Good evening. Tonight, I can report to the American people and to the world that the United States has conducted an operation to kill Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. You might remember that. From 2001 to 2011, Osama bin Laden was the most feared man and wanted man in America. He was the mastermind behind violent attacks. He was actually the mastermind behind uh, the, the attack that is uh, widely uh, remembered today, which is the Twin Towers collapsing, as well as being the founder of a small militia group called Al-Qaeda. Osama was a major threat not only to America, but to the rest of the world. And for four years, and for years, America has, has been trying their hardest to catch this terrier, terrorist, but it always seemed that when they got close to him, he would just slip away. However, that all changed an early morning on May 2nd, when a group of U.S. Special Forces finally got their man. They finally killed Osama bin Laden. President Obama called bin Laden's death the most significant achievement to date in our nation's effort to defeat al-Qaeda. America, for once, could finally breathe a deep sigh of relief. And throughout our nation, the alert level began to slowly lower. You might remember that. As there is now one less threat to our homeland. 
The citizens of America finally felt safe. The government is pleased as it has gained back peace and order and the trust of the people. Everything in the world, everything in America was back to normal. Friends, that's exactly the scene in our current study through the book of John. The biggest threat to Rome and to Israel has finally been killed. Peace and order has been restored in Israel and throughout the world. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, as well as the Roman government can finally breathe a deep sigh of relief. Pilate has washed his hands of the whole matter and has satisfied the bloodthirsty mob of the Jewish leaders. And to them, peace and order has been brought back into place. Caesar is pleased. The Jewish leaders are pleased. And the crowds who yelled, crucify him, crucify him, have finally gotten their wish. The Pharisees and Sadducees are probably, out of everyone, the most happiest at this moment because their man-made tradition of religion that was once threatened by Jesus is now safe again. Their loss of influence among the people has now been regained. And Jesus Christ will no longer embarrass them in front of the crowds by, by pointing out their own hypocrisy and their sinfulness. No longer will they be called uh, uh, vipers and, and murderers of the prophets. The one whom they have tried time after time to capture is no longer on their radar. But he is now in the tomb. The one whom they labeled a blasphemer has finally gotten whom or what he deserved. Death by crucifixion. But what about the followers of Jesus? What are they feeling right now? And if you're a follower of Jesus, at this moment, it's not a good time to be a follower of Jesus. They feel confused. They felt heartbroken. They're left with despair. I mean, they saw Jesus do miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. He was the one who was supposed to be the son of man that was predicted in Daniel. He was supposed to rule and reign like a sword with a sword like King David. He was supposed to dethrone the evil empire known as Rome and, and set the Israelites free. But now the one whom they put all of their hope in, all of their trust in, is now dead in a tomb. Friends, if the book of John ended, and if it ended at verse 42 of chapter 9, if we just, if we just stopped that reading at verse, at verse 42 of chapter 19, then what we have in the story of Jesus is just another good moralist who died for a really good cause. If the book of John ended at verse 42 of chapter 19, then, then Jesus is just another first century would-be Messiah. I mean, friends, let's, let's just pretend for a moment that we don't know the rest of the story, right? Let's pretend we don't know that Jesus has risen from the grave. And let's put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples, of the followers of Christ. How are you feeling about now? Where is your hope in all of this? For three years, they have given up everything for the man who, for this man who claimed to be God. For three years, from, from, from Galilee to the north, to Jerusalem, and, and to the south, they, they followed Jesus Christ. They heard every sermon Jesus preached. And they have come to believe that Jesus is truly the Messiah. They have seen the miracles and they have felt the power. They were so convinced that he is exactly who he claims to be. But, but now that has all changed. He's not who he claimed to be. Because he's dead. He's in a tomb. I'm sure at this moment, the disciples, just like you would feel, probably felt lied to. Yes, they remember Jesus predicting his death. Even Peter rebuked him, but they never actually foresaw his death coming so quickly. And now, now reality is finally sinking in, that Jesus is gone, along with their hopes, along with their future. Now, they have all scattered into hiding. The disciples have went into their homes for fear of the Jews, fearing for their own lives, 
They all have disappeared. All of their hope is now gone. All we have left in this story is just a few brave women who come and pay their respects to Jesus one last time. However, what they discover as they come to the tomb of Jesus will change not only their their and the disciples' lives, but what they encounter at that tomb will change the entire story of Jesus altogether. And to see what these women saw, to, to look at what these women discovered, we have to turn to John chapter 20. All of their hope and dis- all of their hope and fears, all of their hope and worries about if Jesus was the one has now disappeared. These women come to the tomb one last time to pay their respects. This morning I have just three simple points for us to consider. Number 1 is Mary's faith. Number 2, Peter's faith. And number 3, John's faith. Mary's faith. Peter's faith and John's faith. And we will see three different perspectives of of their faith in John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Let's stand for the reading of the word. This is God's holy word. Give it your full attention. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as of yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. You may be seated. So we'll look at the first point, and that is Mary's faith. Mary's faith. Again, verse 1 says, Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So, like I said at the beginning, I want us to place ourselves in the story. Okay? You are a follower of Jesus. You are walking along Mary right now. So, so far, Jesus has been dead for three days. Mary Magdalene, as well as the other women, as as well as other women, as the other gospel writers tell us. So Mary Magdalene wasn't the only one that came to the tomb. There was others as well. They woke up early while it was still dark to go and to anoint the body of Jesus with spices. John doesn't mention the other women who were accompanying Mary Magdalene like the other gospel writers do. For the reason is because... John, I believe, he wanted to write something different. Also, at the time of John's gospel, at the time when 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 it was um, given to the people was about 90 A.D. The other gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, were already being circulated and being read. So John didn't feel like it was necessary to include the other women who were there with Mary Magdalene because people already knew from the other gospels of the other women. So, so John doesn't want to repeat something that's already been said. So John only mentions Mary Magdalene. But, but who is this woman, Mary Magdalene? If you've been in church from some time, you've heard of Mary Magdalene before. But who is this woman? Many say that Mary Magdalene was, was uh, the secret lover of Jesus who bore Jesus' child. Uh, many say that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. But none of those things are true. In fact, the Bible doesn't speak much of Mary Magdalene. We don't know much of her history other than what Luke chapter 8 tells us, which says 
Soon after he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the, of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out. So Mary Magdalene was one of the many who was healed by Jesus Christ. And, and from then on, the moment when she was healed by Christ... She became one of the most devoted followers of Christ. Mary was there at the mock trial where, where people chose to release the unjust Barabbas and choose to crucify the, 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 the Jesus Christ. She witnessed the mockings and the beatings of our Lord. She witnessed our Lord as he carried the cross of Golgotha's heel. She watched Jesus while he suffered on the cross. So, so Mary was there, and she's seen it all. For the last three days, as you would be, Mary has been on an emotional roller coaster. But in spite of her grieving, and in spite of her sadness, in spite of her world just being completely turned upside down, she awakes before the sun rises and boldly comes to see Jesus. Friends, what boldness and courage we see in these women. While the other disciples were hiding for fear of their lives, scared for their lives, Mary Magdalene, along with others, came to see Jesus. They didn't come at night like Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus did, but rather... They came to see Jesus by day. They weren't fearful of the Jews. In spite of her feelings and sorrow and confusion, in spite of her life being totally torn into pieces, she arose early and went to the tomb. And this hard time for Mary, friends couldn't help her. In the most difficult time in Mary's life, family couldn't help her mourn. Like many of us, we turn to our friends and we'll turn to our family to help us grieve and to help us cope with our pain. But Mary's only therapy was just she needed to see Jesus. She just needed to be near Jesus. Question, friends, what does your devotion to Jesus look like? Is any, is it anything like Mary Magdalene's? When, when your world has completely been rocked and, and the dark clouds has, has began to hover over your head, whom do you cling to? Mary had every reason not to wake up early that Sunday morning. She had every reason to just sleep in and not have given visiting the body of Jesus a second thought. She could have stayed in the house hiding like the disciples were doing. Jesus to Mary Magdalene could have simply been a memory, simply an old friend who, who helped her out in the past, who casted out her demons, who did a wonderful miracle in her life. That's what she should have thought. That's what she could have thought. Mary could have just simply moved on with her life. She could have abandoned Jesus. And you know, the funny thing or the interesting thing is many of us would have. Many of us would have stayed home. Yet Mary Magdalene arose early and she came to the tomb. Friends, oh, how her devotion to Jesus puts us all to shame. Every single one of us, it puts us all to shame. In our Christian world, we are, we are so spoiled with, with an abundance of theology books, conferences, seminars, sermons, wonderful preaching, and so on and so forth. So forth. We, we so... We know so much about Christ, yet show a far lesser love for Christ. We know more Christology. We know more about the doctrine of Christ and who he is and what he has done and what that all meant than Mary did. You understand that, right? You know more than Mary did. But yet many of us are devoted to just the, just the theology of Jesus while Mary was devoted to the God-man Jesus. Your, your theology is supposed to, to heighten how you view God. You don't get stuck just learning things. 
It's actually supposed to catapult your worship, catapult your prayer life, catapult your personal piety. Why was Mary so devoted to Christ? Why didn't Mary give her life? Why did, why did she wake up early that morning? Because Mary found Christ to be her supreme treasure. Mary found the pearl that was hidden in the field, and she sold everything else. She gave up everything to buy that field because Christ was in that field. Christ was that pearl. In spite of all the other pearls, those false fake pearls that the world offers, Mary found the supreme pearl, which is only Jesus Christ. Her heart was fully devoted to Jesus Christ. Her devotion to Christ knew no bounds. It knew no limits. It had no barriers. And oh, how Mary puts a shame to our, to our, our half-heartedness. Does she not? Friends, we need to stay in all of the grace and mercy that Christ has shown to us like Mary did. We need to live there. Christ removed seven demons from Mary's body. And in return, Mary gave up her life for Christ. But friends, how much more should we devote our lives to Jesus? Because Christ has done something for you far greater than what he did for Mary back in Luke chapter 8. Jesus removed Mary's demons. That's wonderful. That's great. Seven of them, I might add. But Jesus removed the debt that you owe to God. Jesus removed Mary's demons, but Jesus removed your unrighteousness and he has given you his righteousness. The reason why some of us don't devote our lives to Christ is, is because some of us think that, that God owes us something. And when we look back at our prior lives, we can say, well, I wasn't really that bad. I was a great moralist. But friends, how often do we look back at our past lives through an earthly lens? To the world, yes, I'm sure you are a great person. But that's not how the Bible describes you. Some of us think that we weren't as bad as, as the Bible says that we were. We read Romans 3 when Paul says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one has done good, no, not one. They read that and they say, oh, that's, That can't apply to me. That's not me. However, friends, that is you, because Paul tells us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Friends, in order for you to see God and for, to see Christ the way the Bible prescribes him and the way the Bible depicts him, then you have to bring yourself lower than who you think you are. As Calvin says, in order, in order for us to see God for who he is in that grand picture of God, we must first see ourselves for who we are. We must place the mirror in front of ourselves. That is the only way that you will have that devotion to Christ. That is the only way when we speak about the cross, you will be in awe and you will give amens or you will give head nods or you will just think about what Christ has done on your behalf because you understand that you didn't earn any of those things. That God shouldn't have given you freely his son. Friends, we must, when, 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 when we have a light view of our sinfulness, when we don't have a proper view of who we are before Christ has saved us, when we don't have a proper view of our depravity and our, other un, our utter unworthiness, yeah, we say that we don't deserve it, but many of us don't act like it. When we worship God, it doesn't seem that way. When you, when you have a light view of sinfulness, depravity, and your utter unworthiness, then there will, be no, there will be little to no expression of gratitude and praise. Brothers and sisters, it is those who have the clearest sight of their hell-bound life, those whose, whose hearts are moved by the amazing grace which snatched them as brands from the burning are the ones who are the most devoted among Christ's people. It is only those people who understand the road that they were going on. Let us pray daily. Let us pray daily 
that God will grant us a deeper realization of our sinfulness and a deeper apprehension of the surpassing worthiness of his son so that we may serve and glorify God with increasing zeal and faithfulness. Friends, our view of Christ needs to be like Mary Magdalene. Maybe you, in order for you to see God for who, for who he is, maybe you need to go back to the grave. And maybe you need to dig up who you were. And maybe you need to open the coffin to see the person that you used to be in order for you to finally come to grips of your utter unworthiness of all of the gifts that Christ has given you. Maybe you need to go back. And what that does is that will remind you of God's faithfulness. That will remind you of our God who is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God. That will remind you of his goodness and his love that he had toward you. Maybe you need to go back and see the person whom you used to be in order to appreciate Christ and what he has done. That's what Mary did. Mary always had in the back of her mind who she was before Christ saved her. And that's what ignited her to follow Christ in all of her life. So as we see Mary and the other women are heading over to the tomb, the ending of verse 1 says, And they saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, at this moment, everyone is confused. Because Mary knew the type of stones that were used to seal one's tomb. They knew that the stones weighed anywhere from one to two tons. So these stones were not the easiest to move. That's not to say that it can't be moved. It just took some extra manpower. But these women knew themselves that they themselves couldn't move the stone. Mark's account of the resurrection tells us that on the way there, they themselves were questioning and asking one another, I wonder who's going to remove the stone for us. So as they're walking to the tomb, if you can imagine this, they're walking to the tomb, they're wondering who's going to move this heavy stone and coming upon Christ's gravesite, they see that the stone has been rolled away. Now, I don't know about you, but if I went to go to the cemetery to see my father and coming upon his gravesite, I saw that his plaque has been removed the coffin open and he's not there, I'd be pretty freaked out. And many of you would be as well. And many questions will begin to rush into your head, would they not? Friends, that's exactly what's happening when Mary sees the empty tomb. She's so confused as we would be. So what does she do? What does Mary do when she sees the tomb? When she sees the stone has been rolled away? Look at verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Mary sees that the stone has been rolled away and Mary runs quickly to to Peter and John. And, And notice how she already assumes what has happened to the body of Jesus. She already has come to the conclusion of of what has happened to Jesus. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. She's already come to the conclusion on what has happened to the body of Jesus. Someone has taken the body of Jesus, and someone has put him in a different place. Maybe grave robbers took the body. Grave robbing wasn't uncommon in that day. So maybe some thieves came at, 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 at night and rolled a stone away and took the body of Jesus. However, that's impossible because Matthew's account of the resurrection tells us that the body, the body of Jesus was, was guarded by many soldiers. Pilate told the Pharisees to guard the tomb with soldiers and make it as secure as possible. So, so grave robbing and, grave, and people coming in to steal the body of Jesus would be highly unlikely because that means that they would have to overthrow a band of soldiers. I doubt that that would have taken place. However, Mary knows 
If that's not the case, then, then maybe the chief priests or Romans took the body. Just because you know they've, 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 had, they've had it out so long for Jesus. So, so maybe they took the body of Jesus so they can put it on display and make a mockery of him. All Mary knows is that someone took the body. And friends, what Mary is showing is a lack of faith that we ourselves show from time to time. The same faith that Mary shows here is the same faith that we show. Yes, her heart was inflamed by Jesus, but her faith was cold as ice. A.W. Pink says concerning Mary, how this shows us that love needs to be regulated by faith. Mary's affection for the Savior cannot be doubted and is most blessed as it was, but her faith certainly was not an exercise. She had judged by the sight of her eyes. And oh, how we judge the worst situations with, with our emotions and with our eyes. When we come to a situation where everything is looking horrible and our, and our world is totally turned upside down, how we oftentimes show the same lack of faith and we judge things with our emotions and with our earthly eyes. When our world is rocked, we lean on our own perceptions and our own human finitude rather than God's infinite power. We allow our emotions to determine the worst outcomes rather than faith in God's promises. Friends, I wonder if that's a clear picture of yourself. Because every single one of you, if, if something was to happen to you tomorrow, your faith will be shattered. Because we all look at things with an earthly lens and with our own human finitude rather than God and who he is. When your life isn't going the way you've planned it, are you quick to jump to the worst conclusions and, and do the most irrational things? But are you trusting in God's promises and placing your faith in him? I'm so, so pleased and I, I, am, I am so happy when I, when I was hearing our brothers in the church who were losing their job and I would ask them, brother, how are you doing? And they would just have a smile on their face and say, you know what? I'm doing good. I'm pressing forward. I'm believing in God. I remember my bro- our brother Arturo, tell- he, was, he was mentioning how the year, this past year, has been so rough for him. But in spite of that, he said, but man, I have God. I have my family. What else do I need? That is someone. Those are, those are some examples of people who, when they're in the world worst situation, they're keeping God's word central. They're not going away from God's word and who he is and what he has promised and who they are in Christ. Friends, when God's word is not central in your lives, then there's chaos. When God's word is not central in your life, then your faith is empty. And honestly, you have no reason to hope for, the, for a greater outcome. And at this point, Mary's faith and the centrality of her life was not on God's word. The stone had been rolled away. It it had been removed. And she quickly jumped to the conclusion that someone has taken the body. The the, The thought that Jesus was even alive never even registered in her head. Oh, ye of little faith. And friends, isn't this a picture of our faith during the most confusing and difficult times? One of the amazing things about Abraham was in the midst of his worst situation, the offering up of his son Isaac. It was not that he fully obeyed God and offered up Isaac as a sacrifice. That was a great thing. But that's not the amazing thing about Abraham. The amazing thing is he offered up Isaac because he trusted in who God is. Abraham, in the hardest time of his life, 
boldly gave up his son as a sacrifice. Why? Because he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, as Hebrews tells us. He trusted in God's promises. He trusted in who God is. He knew that his God was powerful. That's very different from Mary. Abraham knew who his God is. Unlike Mary, who didn't understand Jesus is the eternal son of God. Abraham trusted that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Mary didn't even trust that God could raise his own son from the dead. Abraham trusted in God's power. Mary trusted in her own reasoning. Just like us. If we can take one thing from Mary, it should be her heart's devotion to God. But what we leave behind is her lack of faith in who Christ is. Friends, visitors, brothers and sisters, pray daily. Pray every single day, morning and night, throughout the day. That God will reveal to you his power, his promises, so that when you are going through a difficult time, that you remember who he is and you keep his word central in your life. You don't keep Sister Susie's word central, that that one sister, that one girlfriend, that one person who knows the right thing to tell you. You don't keep your mother and dad's uh, good parent advice central. That's That's not the therapy you need. The word of God is all that you need because Christ is all sufficient in every situation, good or bad. So Mary quickly runs to Peter and John and she tells them that someone has stolen the body, which leads to our second point, Peter's faith. Verse three and four. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So Peter and John, upon hearing the news from Mary, quickly dashed to the tomb, as you would have as well, right? If Mary telling you, hey, that's, that, that stone ain't there no more. Something's going down. You need to go check this out. So Peter and John quickly get up. And they run to the tomb. But, but it's striking how both of these men believe Mary at her word. Because, and, and women, don't take offense to this, but at this time, a woman's word wasn't viewed as being very reliable. Nevertheless, they believe Mary, and they quickly run to the tomb. Women, you are bold enough to go to the tomb, okay? So you have that on men. You're, you're good. But John details that, that they got... When they when they when they when he, they were running to the tomb, he says that he outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, why would John mention something like that? Why would he Why would he say something like? Is that something that we need to know? I mean, there's not much theology in that. Why would John mention something like that? Maybe John wrote that because he wanted to rub it in Peter's face. You know, ha ha! I got there before you. Maybe he wrote that because he was revealing his age. John was younger than Peter. John had quicker legs. Or maybe John wanted to mention that. Maybe he wanted to mention that he reached a tomb first because it revealed the heavy, reluctant heart Peter had. Maybe Peter ran slower than John because Peter is still dealing with all of, all of those times that people approached him and they, and they asked him, Hey, do you know Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? Peter has a guilty conscience, which made him probably somewhat fearful of a possible meeting with his Savior. Because Peter at this time has not yet been restored to fellowship with Christ. And his denial of Christ, I'm sure, has been replaying over and over and over in his mind. However, John arrives at the tomb first. And what happens when John gets to the tomb? What does John see? Verse 5. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. 
So John quickly gets to the tomb first, right? But John doesn't even bother to go inside the tomb. He stoops down with what his eyes can see in the pitch black darkness. He sees the linen cloth that was used to wrap Jesus simply lying there. Verse 6, then Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying there with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. So we have John, you know, being the more quiet, reserved, doesn't bother to even go in, simply stoops down, looks with with what his eyes can see. He sees the linen cloths. And then we have Peter. Typical Peter, right? Have you ever seen The Godfather, anyone? Peter is like Sonny, okay? P- Peter, Peter runs to the tomb. Doesn't, doesn't, he doesn't stop. He's like, hey, John, what are you doing? Let's go in. He just dashes in to the tomb. And he sees the same linen cloth that was used to wrap Jesus, and he sees Jesus' face cloth. Now, if you're Peter, and let's just imagine for a second you're Peter. I'm sure at this moment you're telling yourself that something strange is going on here. I mean, you, you can't quite put your finger on it, but Peter sees that Jesus' body is, isn't here, but the linen cloths that wrapped him are here. Like, if I went to go see my father, his body's not there, but the suit that he was buried in is there. Something is going on here. Something is completely strange. And I'm sure Peter thinks that he is somewhat in a twilight zone. I mean, Mary said that someone has taken the body of Jesus, but, but it doesn't appear that way. It doesn't appear that someone took the body of Jesus. It all doesn't make sense because no thief or enemy in removing the body of Jesus, they wouldn't have gone out of their way to remove the linen cloths. It just doesn't happen that way. If anything, they would have took the linen cloths and just left the body because linen was more valuable than the body itself. But also, they wouldn't have gone to the trouble of removing the linen cloths because the myrrh, you guys remember the myrrh that was applied to Jesus' body? It sticks to it sticks to linen. It sticks to linen. Um, the linen to the body. It sticks to like it's, it's like a glue. Okay, it acts like a glue. So if you were going to remove the body of Jesus, there's no way you're going to go through all of that hassle and all of that trouble to remove all of that linen. It would save more time and trouble just to take the body as it was. With the linen wrapped around it. You see, that, you see that on videos all the time when someone is trying to steal the register. What do they do? They can't get it open. They just take the whole register. Similar, similar, similar situation here. Peter is perplexed. He's confused. Something strange is going on, but I think what he sees in verse 7 makes him beyond perplexed. Look at verse 7 once again. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up by itself. Now, that's weird. That's really, really weird. If someone was to steal the body of Jesus, they wouldn't leave the tomb all nice and neat. It it doesn't happen that way. They especially wouldn't have neatly folded the face cloth that, that covered Jesus' face. I mean, if you ever had your car broken into or your house robbed, if you lived in Bakersfield for a long time, you probably have, rarely do the thieves leave your house clean and put everything back in order. And they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't take the lamp that they, that they uh, knock down. They don't put it back in its place. Or, or when they go through your clothes, they don't fold everything back up and put it back in its place. It, it doesn't happen that way. However, that's what's happening here. Peter sees that the face cloth was folded up in a place by itself. It's put in its own corner as if someone took the time to fold it up and just neatly place it there. 
Peter knows that someone didn't rob the body of Jesus because the evidence doesn't match up. But he, but he also can't think beyond his own, his own human finitude to believe that Jesus has rose from the dead and is now alive. He, he can't think beyond that point. He's staring right at the evidence of a resurrection, yet he's, he can't bring himself to believe in a resurrection. But this is typical Peter, is it not? This is how Peter, this is how Peter operates. Peter has always been opposed to seeing things, not seeing things through, an, through a spiritual lens. One example of this in Matthew 16, from the time that Jesus began to show the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's what Jesus was telling Peter, right? That I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, but I will rise. What does Peter do? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So Peter at this moment, just like he was in Matthew 16, was setting his mind on the things of man and was not setting his mind on the things of God. Peter is looking at the evidence of Christ's resurrection through an earthly lens rather than spiritual. Peter is only believing what he wants to believe. He's only allowing his mind to go so far. Remind you of someone? Peter is showing the same faith Mary showed. Mind you, Mary, Mary didn't even bother to go inside the tomb. She just simply looked at it and went. Peter is showing an agnostic faith toward the power of God. And isn't it interesting how Peter was the boldest out of the twelve, yet was the weakest in his faith. Peter said that, I'll never leave you, Jesus. Yet he was one of the first to deny Jesus. Peter was quick to draw the sword in, in the Garden of Gethsemane to defend Jesus, yet he said concerning Jesus, I do not know the man. Peter rebuked Christ's death and resurrection then, and at this moment is still an unbeliever in Christ's resurrection. Oh, how we are to guard our hearts and our lives from such faith. Let us not be like Peter, that, that, that lack, that atheistic faith toward God. He came to the tomb, and he carefully looked at all the evidence he saw the linen cloths, he saw the face cloth all folded up, and he came to the wrong conclusion. But there's still one more witness that has yet to go inside. Now it's John's turn to enter the tomb, which leads to our final point, John's faith. Verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he went in and he saw and he believed. John enters the tomb and sees exactly what Peter sees. The empty grave clothes, the, the, uh, the face cloth folded by itself. He reasons in his own mind. He, he says to himself, it doesn't look like robbers took the body because because the tomb is too neatly organized, John knows that there is only one explanation for all of this. That Jesus has risen from the dead. The Holy Spirit begins to illumine John's eyes and mind. And he now believes with deeper assurance and with deeper convictions that Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That Christ is everything that he said he was. And in an instant, all of his doubts are cast away. All his second thoughts are removed. And he now stands fully assured that Jesus is the Son of God. Friends, John's faith is the perfect example of what our faith needs to look like in the most difficult of times. 
What we see here and what we see here with these two men is two men come to the tomb, look at the same evidence, yet come to different conclusions. What John saw and believed, Peter saw and denied. But why didn't Peter believe? Why didn't Peter believe in, in Christ's resurrection? Why did he deny Christ's resurrection? Well, look at verse 9. For as of yet, they didn't understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Friends, when we think about the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of Christ is not some new development in Christianity. It's not something that was just thrown in into the New Testament. But it's seen through types and shadows and through prophecies throughout the, the whole Old Testament. They didn't understand Matthew 53, verses 9 through 12, as it says, His grave was a sign with wicked men, yet he was a rich man in his death. They didn't understand this part, though. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. You can't prolong someone's days if they're dead. They didn't, they didn't understand Psalm 16, 7 through 11. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, he also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shoal or let your Holy One see corruption. Oh, Psalm 49, 15. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of the grave. The disciples stumbled over the fact that the Messiah will die and never given a second thought that he must rise from the dead. All Jesus' teachings about his resurrection flew right over their heads. And here, Peter is not believing because he doesn't understand the scriptures. But friends, isn't that a clear description of us as well? Peter's lack of knowledge of the scriptures is a clear description of who we were and in somewhat who we still are now. We have to take a lesson from Peter's ignorance that led to his lack of faith. Because we, all, all of us at one point didn't understand everything the Bible says. And at some point still don't. This is why we must take the reading of our word very serious. In order that we may lack in nothing. That when we come to a certain situation, when our world is turned upside down. That what we're standing upon is not a house that's built on sand but a house that's built on, rock, on a rock, and that rock is God's word. It's on Christ. What we have in the scriptures is the full revelation of Christ. No TV show has the full revelation of Christ. No movie has the full revelation of Christ. But many of us put more time into what, what the world throws at us and, and media than we do with Scripture. Scripture has given us the full revelation of who Christ is. And the more we know the Christ that's revealed in the Bible, notice how I said the Christ that's revealed in the Bible. Not the Christ that's revealed in the world, the good moralist who taught good things, or, or the Christ that's revealed in popular Christianity. You know? That, that, that blonde-haired Jesus who holds the lamb, who just knocks at your door. That's, that's not the Jesus whom the Bible speaks of. But the Jesus of the Bible, the more you know that Jesus of the Bible, then the more we begin to grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures. And then the deeper the roots of our faith will be planted. But when we see, but what we see in Peter's lack of understanding of the Scriptures is yes, Peter, you should have known. But man, oh, how it highlights our great God. Does it not? 
Oh, how it, how it lifts up the perfect patience that God has toward his elect. Peter didn't understand what was happening that Sunday morning. But, but mind you, God didn't completely cut Peter off. It's okay, Peter. God didn't erase Peter's name from the book of life because he didn't understand the scriptures. God was patient toward Peter, just like he was patient toward you. And in a few chapters, you will see that God will eventually restore Peter's confidence and faith in Christ. Friends, the same patience that God showed Peter is the same patience we are to show our friends, family, unbelievers, new converts, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's okay if they don't know everything. Be patient toward them. Peter doesn't believe at this moment, but John believed. And that's the faith that we should model. We should model John's faith. Because John kept God's word central. Although he admits that he didn't fully understand the scriptures, he didn't fully understand everything that was going on, he knew that one thing was for certain, that Jesus is no longer dead, that he is alive. The trajectory of his faith is starting to climb back up again. John knew that something miraculous has happened. And friends, visitors, brothers and sisters, that Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away, something miraculous did happen. That the King of kings, the Lord of glory, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, has risen from the dead. The main thing that St. John is highlighting in these ten verses are those empty grave clothes. Those empty grave clothes are what perplexed Peter. It saddened Mary and gave confidence to John. But what can we take from those grave clothes? When we look back 2,000 years ago, what can we take away from this revelation that John has given us of these empty grave clothes? What, what can we see? And it simply is this. He's no longer here, but he has risen from the grave. That the Lord of glory is no longer dead, but he is alive. Those empty grave clothes signified more than, than the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. They signified more than the body was not stolen, but has been risen. Those empty grave clothes signified that death could no longer hold him. Those empty grave clothes signified that the prison that Christ was in could no longer retain him. Just as in the Old Testament, when the Pharaoh called for Joseph, who was in prison, before Joseph steps out of his cell, before he goes to see Pharaoh, Genesis 41 tells us that Joseph shaved his head, or shaved himself, and changed his clothes. I don't even know, I don't know, did you catch that? Just as this type in the Old Testament, Joseph, who was about to go out of his cell, he changed his clothes. Joseph left those clothes that labeled him an inmate, just as Christ left behind his outfit that labeled him a dead man. Jesus left behind his outfit of death. Why? Why did Jesus leave behind those linen cloths? Because there was a righteous robe that awaits him. Jesus has completed the righteous demands of the Father. Christ has presented himself before the Father. And the Father has vindicated his Son by rising him from the dead. Christ's resurrection proves that we don't have to work and obey the law in order to be justified before God. In order, to, in order to be declared righteous before a holy God. But brothers and sisters, on the account of Christ and him alone and his perfect obedience, we are declared justified. And Christ's resurrection is the very evidence that we too are justified. God would not let his holy one see decay. He would not let his holy one see corruption. But he rushes in to the son, to, to, to his son's aid. 
and he rises him from the dead. Brothers and sisters, this morning, I offer you Christ and his righteous robe. I offer you better clothes to wear. Remove those linen cloths that represent the old, sinful, dying, decaying man and put on the newness of life that is yours in Jesus Christ. Those old, those old cloths that represent your depravity, that represent your separation from God. Put those all aside. Leave those behind. And put on Christ's righteous robe that represents your peace with God. Leave your old linen cloths in the grave. As we close this morning, we leave these ten verses with, with three different states of mind. As both John and Peter go back to their homes, as verse 10 tells us, John is convinced, and he's starting to understand that Jesus has risen from the dead. Peter is uncertain of, of what, he all, what he witnessed and, and what has taken place but is amazed at what he saw. And for Mary, she stays by the tomb weeping. She doesn't want to abandon her Lord. Yet little does she know that in a few moments, her sorrow will be turned into joy. Because the one who has overcome the grave will make a surprise appearance. Let's stand.